This is a Counterspin Media presentation. Presenting Samantha Edwards Reports. Warning. If this man is your favorite politician, it may be a good idea to cease viewing this video immediately. If you believe that the hope of our nation rests upon this man's shoulders, but you decide to persist in viewing, please make sure you have a box of tissues in one hand and your counselor ready on speed dial in the other hand. Disclaimer, the following content is presented on the basis of supporting the voters' right to informed choice. Winston rides again. Following is a comprehensive but by no means exhaustive omnibus of the political manoeuvrings of Winston Peters over the last few years. As we take a look into the instalment of globalist agendas in New Zealand, such as our extreme abortion bill, our extreme euthanasia bill, and the extreme sexualisation of our children, our signing up to the UN's migration pact and to globalist vaccine alliances, the surrendering of our market to Big Pharma, the exclusion of natural remedies from that same market, well, you may be shocked to learn how much of this has indeed been accomplished by Winston Peters and by his party, New Zealand First. We'll also take a look at what happened to Winston's promises around 1080, TPPA, the Pike River Mine, the Provincial Growth Fund, and a quick look at his position on the false climate change agenda, as well as on mandatory vaccinations. We'll even have a visit from my old friend Cam Slater as we take a short dive into the serious fraud officer's case against the New Zealand First Foundation from a couple of years ago. And connections to those I mentioned in my previous election PSYOP piece will again show themselves. The first part of this video, particularly around the end of life choice bill, can get a little bit technical in places, but I encourage you to persevere as the information in this video is very important to consider as we approach the polling booths. Chapter 1. Winnie and the E.O.L. Escapade. Way back in 1995, the New Zealand National Party attempted to pass a euthanasia bill titled Death with Dignity. They were unsuccessful. It was strongly opposed by a raft of medical professionals via submissions made to the Health Select Committee, who deemed it to be dangerous to the vulnerable. In 2003, New Zealand first attempted to pass the same bill. Again, it was voted down. In 2015, David Seymour of the ACT Party introduced a new and more expansive euthanasia bill called the End of Life Choice Bill. This time, despite the fact that it endangered the vulnerable far more than the Death with Dignity Bill, it was successful. Why? Well, let's take a look at why David Seymour expressed an uncharacteristic gratitude of Winston Peters for his cooperation in helping to achieve the success of passing the 2019 End of Life Choice Bill and why Seymour acknowledged that it was due to the seemingly most unlikely of partnerships that this bill was successfully passed. Uh, joins us now. G'day David, good morning. Hey, good morning Duncan. You're doing business with Winston? 
Oh, look, we've had an agreement that's gone back or probably over a year now that um, he would support the end-of-life choice bill and so would the other New Zealand First Members of Parliament uh, if I did my best to make sure we got a referendum in there too. So I've kept uh, my word, uh, he's kept his. Uh, and if we work together and if other MPs also support uh, the referendum idea, then I think the bill can pass uh, relatively easily. Uh, if there's not a, a referendum added to the bill in this committee stage, I think we can still get through all the way, but it will be a lot harder. There's been two previous bills, uh, one in 1995, uh, one in 2003, uh, and Winston Peters voted for both of them, uh, and I expect him to vote for the end-of-life choice bill in 2019 as well. Oh, how constructive you and Winston, like see a future coalition, but the two of you somewhere in the mix. Well, look, I mean, I, I think my... Winston Peters, who graduated as a lawyer back in 73, is a politically and legally savvy man, thoroughly familiar with political processes, enough so that he understood that the Crimes Act would have to be changed if an end-of-life bill was to ever make it over the table. He knew from New Zealand First's previous attempt to pass a euthanasia bill that the Health Select Committee, which is populated by doctors and medical professionals, had previously opposed such legislative changes and that they definitely opposed this one as it was far more extreme in nature. In true Agenda 2030 style, science and morality would have to be bypassed and it would need to be imposed through corporate government fascism if it was to achieve success. So, a bill was constructed using a mechanism and process that did just that, whereby the Justice Select Committee was designated to hear submissions, thus hurdling the Health Select Committee in one nimble leap, effectively ruling the medical community out of the conversation and decision. It was a move that dodged the medico-legal ethics surrounding euthanasia by bringing about a simple change in the Crimes Act. Chapter 2 The Great Doctors versus Government Showdown Consistent results from surveys and medical groups, as well as the vast majority of New Zealand GPs, vehemently opposed the bill. The medical community implored for its reconsideration. They petitioned that it was a complicated bill that required medical expertise to understand. Seymour, however, was unfazed as he knew they no longer held sway, as all submissions were now with the Justice Committee. This bill was not as its title described, about the end of life implying old age, but about a person's right to have their life exterminated immediately, without counselling, without the presence of physical pain, without the requirement of any appropriate medical or palliative treatment, without any cool-down period whatsoever between the request and the termination procedure, without a witness being present at any stage of the process, without being required to inform anyone of their decision, strangely even stipulating that the patient does not need to be asked to reaffirm their decision at the point of administration of the lethal substance. For example, if an 18-year-old girl suffering from what's called terminal anorexia nervosa asked to be put out of her misery, a doctor or nurse would be going against the law to not facilitate her request. Even though her condition is one of many that medical experts agree is unable to be accurately determined as terminal, Nobody, not even her parents, would be required to be informed of the procedure until the following day when they'd get a phone call notifying them that there's a body to come and collect. 
At the time of the referendum, a group called whanauconcern.nz recreated such a scenario to try and raise public awareness. Hello, is this Mrs. Tuhoi? Yes. This is Dr. Smith. In accordance with the End of Life Choice Act 2019, I'm obliged to ring you. Your daughter has been euthanized. You will need to collect the body within a certain time frame. Uh, 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 um, um, what do you mean? You will need to collect your daughter's body. Both Winston Peters and David Seymour said that this act was safe because it was only for those with a terminal illness. A closer investigation reveals that this act seems to purposefully not define what terminal actually means. The End of Life Choice Act in Oregon uses the same wording and the same definitions. And as a result now, anyone who would be dead within six months if they stopped taking their medication is eligible to be euthanized. That means someone who would be dead if they didn't take their insulin or their heart medication. And in many places, this definition is now being stretched to cover mental illness as well as physical. As exceedingly permissive as this bill is though, it's still too restrictive for David Seymour's liking. And he's made it clear many times, as he does in this interview from December 23rd, 2022, that he will push those boundaries out even further as soon as he gets the opportunity to do so. Um, you know, I, I personally um, regret that end of life choice still excludes some people who won't die within six months. Uh, so look, that is, is not really a, a fail uh, this year. It's more unfinished business. Uh, we will expand the end of life choice act. Just like our abortion act, New Zealand's end of life choice act is more extreme than in other countries. Even in liberal Canada, Two witnesses are required when a person signs their request, but here in New Zealand, none are required. Keep in mind also that although you or your loved one may not be able to afford vital life-saving surgery and have to wait months, if not years, on the public waiting list, because of this bill, this end-of-life procedure can be given to anyone aged 18 and up almost immediately and completely free of charge. Now, although the government clearly refused to protect the vulnerable, by denying every SOP requested to amend this bill and make it safer, they didn't fail to protect the medical practitioner in the case of a wrongful euthanasia death. You may or may not be surprised to learn that if a medical practitioner causes wrongful death as a result of the euthanasia process, the Act itself stipulates that the consequence of such action is not to exceed $10,000 or three months imprisonment. Of course, with good legal representation, that could easily be reduced to no more than a slap on the hand. So in other words, a potentially premeditated action causing wrongful death with less consequence than fishing over the quota. Is this not our government explicitly defining a human life to be worth less than $10,000? Doctors are Hippocratic people who hold the preservation of life as paramount. They were already employing compassionate practices. It was already legal for life support to be turned off and already legal for patients to refuse treatment and already legal to administer as much pain relief as needed, even if it does end up hastening the patient's death. But it was the blatantly unsafe clauses in this bill that they objected to, such as the fact that it can take as little as four days from when the patient hears that they're terminally ill to when they're euthanized. And understandably, they didn't want to become legally bound lethal agents to anyone who knocked on their door asking for this procedure. 
They pleaded to have their more than 38,000 submissions to the Justice Select Committee heard and honoured. The Care Alliance analysed virtually all of those submissions and found that over 90% were opposed, and not for religious reasons. Many submitters citing a frequent occurrence of patients requesting euthanasia, identifying that part of the reason for their decision was that they didn't want to be a burden to their friends and family any longer. Even though the Health Select Committee had been disenfranchised from having a direct influence on this extreme bill's progress, many in the medical community began to speak up, albeit in a censored voice. They began to inform the public of the alarming international trends where nations had complied with this globalist euthanasia agenda. It was clear that they would still try to exert some influence by making their expert objections known, as well as those of the wider medical community. It was also clear that because such a bill is always permitted to be voted according to an MP's conscience, rather than along party lines, many MPs may still have chosen to heed those expert medical voices and the bill was still quite likely to be ultimately voted down. Chapter 3 Winston's Referendum Ransom This is where Winston Peters came in, in a move that appears to have been planned well ahead of time. At the event of the first reading of the End of Life Choice Bill, David Seymour announced that he had agreed to a request made by Winston Peters way back in 2015, when he first entered his End of Life Bill into the ballot box, for a binding public referendum on the End of Life Choice Bill saying that New Zealand First had asked for the public referendum in exchange for its nine votes. At the 2017 Labour and New Zealand First coalition negotiations, the one thing that Winston stipulated must be upheld in order for this coalition to take place was that a provision be made for a binding public referendum to be held on the End of Life Choice Bill. In 2019, after New Zealand First had voted in favour of, for all three readings, New Zealand First member Jenny Marcroft then successfully secured an amendment into the End of Life Bill that the government hold a binding public referendum. There were courageous voices in Parliament that stood against this bill, echoing the medical community's insistence that this bill not be handed to the New Zealand public. Here's Maggie Barry. I believe that um, this bill's fundamental purpose is designed to allow swift and easy access to euthanasia with scant regard for safeguards. We worked with elder abuse, end-of-life care professionals, disability and dementia experts, as well as doctors and lawyers. We put up 111 amendments designed to address safety concerns to ensure, for example, that medical professionals be required to check specifically for signs of elder abuse and to take active steps to ensure a patient is not under duress or being coerced. We tried hard to strengthen those safeguards against coercion and to ensure that agencies such as hospices and rest homes would have the right to conscientiously object, and that was not passed. The Disability Rights Commissioner, Paula Tesserero, is very firmly of the view that this bill, in its current state, devalues the lives of people living with disabilities and poses significant risks for them. The so-called right to die for some would all too easily become a duty to die for others, and a law change would normalise this. Uh, this is a flawed bill. It does not, uh, in its 
present form should not be handed over to the people of New Zealand to do what the politicians could not do, which is to get a, a grip on this bill to understand it. We need to put resources into looking after people at the end of their lives for caring for them, not for killing them, not for funding euthanasia through the Ministry of Health, for goodness sake. I can't live with the permissive bill and I do not support it before this House. Let's not euphemise this with niceties and phrases. This is a kill bill. Because the Liberals that want this to pass do not have the numbers without a referendum. And those that want to advance abortion reform are refusing a referendum because they have the numbers anyway. In addition to party vote and electorate vote, the public will now vote on whether to legalise assisted dying. I feel like this is the start of the referendum campaign. As the binding public referendum drew closer, David Seymour then launched a public campaign encouraging people to vote yes on the referendum. That campaign played on the fear of pain of death, kept the public ignorant to the dangerous details contained inside the bill, and it received committed support from members of not only ACT and New Zealand First, but also Liberal members of National, such as Judith Collins. The Honourable Judith Collins. Speaker, 25 years ago, I held my father's hand as he died, and he died with massive amounts of morphine in his system. He is someone who was uh, diagnosed with terminal bone cancer and given a few weeks to live. He lived six weeks. I've talked to many people about this issue and it's troubled me for a long time. And this year I have been very troubled by it because I felt that having been opposed to it, that I was on the wrong side. And I am on the wrong side of it in opposing it. I'm the right side now to say that everybody deserves some dignity in their lives. And to take... Now, a referendum is good, right? Democracy and a public voice is important. Yes, but... This was a profoundly technical medico-legal issue. Now we found ourselves with dairy owners, electricians, plumbers and mechanics making a profoundly complex medical decision. And the referendum question was presented as simply as, do you support the End of Life Choice Act coming into force? That was it. That was the depth and extent of it. At the final vote, Winston Peters' party voted fully in support of the bill, as they'd promised to do. But now, their support could be deemed as simply a matter of fulfilling their obligations, as a condition of the allowance of the referendum. A referendum that was agreed to four years earlier and guaranteed to be binding at the New Zealand First Labour Coalition negotiations two years earlier. As we saw earlier, Winston has been very much in support of getting a euthanasia bill through Parliament since at least the early 90s. By helping to scaffold this bill around the Justice Committee with the aim of changing the Crimes Act, ruling out the medical community, as well as the addition of the binding public referendum, it all worked together to see this goal achieved, but without any blood getting on his hands. Like a consummate Pontius Pilate with absolute forethought, it appears that Winston knew that the best way to avoid any responsibility, as well as greatly increasing the chances of the bill's success, was to simply put it to the people. This appears to be a bit of a repeating pattern in Winston's MO, and perhaps may not be so much about democracy as about achieving a purpose. Which is pretty much what we just heard National's Nick Smith say a minute ago, and was something that many MPs accused Winston of with this referendum condition, that it was playing dirty politics to manipulate the success of this bill. 
As the referendum drew closer, medical alliances such as Doctors Say No started to pop up to sound the alarm. They issued an open letter to New Zealand, trying to educate people, and even King's Council Grant Illingworth began to speak up about how the once sacrosanct Hippocratic Oath was being rendered impotent in New Zealand. I don't think we've had a referendum like this in New Zealand before. Is it uh, safe, secure, watertight? My answer to that is no, I've got serious concerns about the process. And groups like VoteSafe tried to spread the word about the dangers of this bill, imploring people to place their referendum vote on the side of the protection of the vulnerable. Another wonderful group called Lawyers for Vulnerable New Zealanders did their best to educate the public as quickly as possible and put out a number of articles in an effort to reach as many as they could to help people navigate and decipher the complexities in this bill. But there were just too many complexities to unravel in such a short time. One such complexity could be the fact that our health system is not operated on a needs basis. For example, if you found yourself at the back of the queue due to the fact that you're not Māori or Pacifica and therefore facing an extensive wait for medical attention or even pain relief, could taking the end-of-life choice option then be guaranteed to be 100% a choice in such a scenario? Or could it then actually be a default option because of our racist health policies? Or what if poverty limited a patient's healthcare access and they felt they couldn't financially afford pain management? Could a free procedure, instantly ending all pain, no waiting involved, not then become unevenly and dangerously attractive? Chapter 4. Winston's Way Saves the Day The results are in. The end-of-life choice referendum has been won 65.2%. Lo and behold, Winston's public referendum was the deciding factor and the bill was voted in. Some wily politics, some unconventional teamwork and what many may call a complete dismissal of ethics got the job done in the end. Sadly, end-of-life choice, which should be a decision undergirded by Hippocratic principles, allowing the application of medical ethics, has now been moved into an arena that is purely legal in its context. Our doctors have been absolutely violated and turned into agents of death against their will. Chapter 5. Strange. Justice. After the end-of-life choice bill was finalised, Jenny Marcroft, Winston's MP that secured its referendum, then took a hiatus to Labour in 2021, but returned to New Zealand First in 2023. Upon her return, she announced that New Zealand First would reform Pharmac and that the party had agreed to support her proposal to increase the big pharmaceuticals budget by $1.3 billion. The Pharmac model clearly is not working and hasn't been so for a while. New Zealand First will scrap that model and will also pump $1.3 billion extra into our medicines funding. 
At the same time, Winston Peters announced that he would be seeking COVID-19 jab injury compensation from the New Zealand government. Now, I find two aspects quite strange here. The first being that our government has not permitted the mainstream media to publicly acknowledge the existence of COVID-19 vaccine injury. But when it comes to New Zealand first electoral promises, they are indeed permitted to acknowledge them, which to me anyway indicates that Winston is a part of the government propaganda machine. The second aspect is that he's promising the government to fund this compensation. Why the New Zealand government? Why did he not say he'd be seeking that from Pfizer or any of the other big pharma companies that injured and killed our people? Why would he be asking the New Zealand taxpayer to pay for their own jab injuries? Again, we see a clever move by Winston that causes him to appear to be on the side of the people when the truth just may be something quite different. If you think about it, this move protects Big Pharma and their relationship with our government. Not only is Winston Peters not holding the criminal to account with this promise, potentially allowing Big Pharma and the globalist organisations that force them upon us to escape unscathed, but he's now opening up the New Zealand market to Big Pharma more than ever by declaring an extra $1.3 billion set aside to be spent on their products. So, to get this straight, Winston Peters is promising compensation, reparation for jab-injured Kiwis, where they themselves will pay for the injuries inflicted upon them by Big Pharma, while at the same time ensuring increased government spending to the tune of 1.3 billion of our dollars on the same Big Pharma companies that inflicted those injuries and also killed many of us. That would do nothing but perpetuate a system where Kiwis keep getting sicker while the cartel keeps getting richer and never being held to account for their enormous crimes against humanity. Not sure that that's justice, but that's what Winston Peters seems to be trying to sell us as justice. Chapter 6, Advocate or Accessory. Winston's reluctance to hold the criminal responsible be partly because he was Deputy Prime Minister and even Acting Prime Minister for a time, signing off on the murderous COVID emergency laws that deliberately coerced people into receiving those very poisons? Not only would pointing out the crimes of Pfizer also point to something that he was very much complicit in, but it also wouldn't be good for New Zealand's future relationships with Big Pharma. Relationships that it appears that Winston would prefer to keep intact. And one other thing, wouldn't Winston's concern for the jab injured, if that's indeed what it is, have been evidenced at some other point along the way? Before now, like the actual real deal people's representative that decided to stand recently, who was loudly warning people about the dangers of the jab from the start and interviewing the jab injured over the last couple of years and trying to help them in any way she could? If Winston's concern for the jab injured was as real as hers, surely it wouldn't just coincidentally show itself in the few weeks leading up to the election. I mean, it almost makes it look as if he's trying to scoop up that large and ever-growing group that's awake and aware, perhaps injured, pat them on the shoulder, bribe them with promises of compensation and justice to get them back into the machine. That'd be a pretty low down thing to do if that was the case. 
Anyway, there have been a number of other connections between Winston Peters and pharmaceuticals over the years. Chapter 7, Advocate or Accomplice. In September 2020, Winston Peters announced his cooperation and support for a global vaccine facility called COVAX. Launched by Gavi and in partnership with the World Health Organization, the World Bank and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Winston matter-of-factly notified Kiwis everywhere that he, on our behalf, had now pledged our support and significant financial investment into this project. According to this government release, we, being the people of New Zealand, expressed our interest in not only joining the COVAX facility, but also in investing an initial 27 million, as well as indefinitely continuing indeterminate amounts towards Bill Gates and the World Health Organization's research and development of more so-called vaccines, also known as bioweapons against humanity. It's never been revealed exactly how much that figure has grown to since then, but we do know that in 2020, Parliament, with Winston Peters as Deputy Prime Minister, had already approved $181 billion to be spent on COVID measures. I, for one, would really love to hear Winston answer to the public on this decision, preferably before he gets back into Parliament, to give away another few billion of our near-destitute nation's dollars to the globalists to aid their depopulation agenda. Does he regret that apostate and when it comes down to it, murderous decision? Will he endeavour to have us withdrawn from the Gavi Alliance once in Parliament? And more importantly, will he endeavour to have us withdrawn as a member state of the World Health Organisation, especially in the light of the upcoming international health regulation amendments that are set to see the violation of human rights go to a level that far exceeds the COVID mandates, where bodily autonomy is set to be stripped as a human right? The World Health Organization is run by a man who cannot even step foot in his own home country because he's wanted for genocide and mass murder there. A veritable, bona fide genocidal maniac. Through the International Health Regulation Amendments and the Pandemic Treaty, our government is subjecting us to an organization run by a man who it's well known has literally forcefully aided in exterminating an entire race of people through pharmaceuticals. Yes, our government would like to see us forced into a position of receiving the medicines the World Health Organization mandates for us at the advent of their declaration of a fake or public health emergency of international concern. Yes, a fake. <laughs> yes, they're mocking us. They know that we know, and this is an overt gloat about how blatant they can be and still get away with it. It is crucial to understand that at the advent of a fake, you'll not need symptoms or even testing to be required to submit to these IHRs, which upon investigation do indeed suggest the end of your bodily autonomy. How is it that we, the New Zealand public, can be aware of these issues of monumental importance, yet Winston hasn't stood up and spoken about them, ever? I've tried to contact him several times asking questions about the IHRs and have never received a response, even once. Surely, the impending denial of our right to decline untested and potentially poisonous pharmaceuticals is an important issue? 
that we should be allowed to discuss, especially now that we know from the Immunisation Agenda 2030 report that the World Health Organisation has 500 new so-called vaccines poised to enter our routine vaccination schedule. With Winston sidling up to a coalition with National, he would then be going into a coalition with a party whose leader has already said he supports the idea of a no jab, no job and no benefit policy for all those who don't have themselves and their children vaccinated with every vaccine on the official schedule. This is a policy that could accurately be then called a no jab, no income at all policy. Here's Chris Luxon on The Morning Report saying just that. Do you support cutting benefits to solar parents who don't vaccinate their children? Yes, I do. Why? Um, because it's about a notion of rights and responsibilities. If you want to be part of New Zealand and civil society, you have certain inalienable rights, but you also have responsibilities to actually for the collective and, and helping the collective of New Zealand. Why just target solo parents and probably solo mums, really, if we're talking about it? Should that it's be extended? Should it, should it be extended to cutting working for families benefits? It, it, yeah, it should. Yeah, it should. So the question here really is this. How will seeking jab compensation from our government, aka the taxpayer, be of any benefit in the long run if Winston won't stand up to future vaccine mandates, as are obviously planned for us? if he won't stand up to it being done all over again, this time with even more catastrophic ramifications. Given Luxon's appetite for mandatory vaccinations and his fondness that he's spoken of publicly for his friend, the poison-pushing Bill Gates, wouldn't Winston need to be in opposition to Luxon to make such a stand on our behalf instead of being in coalition with him? Chapter 8. Winnie's. Snake. Oil. High drinks. In 2005, Winston promised the people of New Zealand that he'd stand on their behalf against the impending introduction of the Therapeutic Products and Medicines Bill, also known as the Trans-Tasman Drug Agency Bill, if he was elected into Parliament. Many people then gave Winston their vote based on this promise to stand against this bill. They trusted him to stand against regulations that were set to be applied to basic foods and vitamins, such as manuka honey or garlic extract. The public's position was that natural products like these shouldn't face the same regulations as pharmaceuticals. People could see that this appeared to be deliberately and unnecessarily hindering access to natural products in favour of pharmaceuticals, and they could also see that this bill posed a threat to our sovereignty on this issue. However, once Winston was comfortably inside the beehive the following year, he completely abandoned the promise he'd made and fully supported the passing of the bill. This photo is from a 2006 New Zealand Herald article which covered the protest that was held at Parliament to express public anger at Winston's betrayal. It shows a Health Trust supporter trying to hand Winston Peters the emails from Kiwis who opposed the bill, but Winston refused to even acknowledge them, let alone read them. Chapter 9. Winston and the Artful Abortion Artifice Let's now talk about the infamous abortion bill of 2020 and the act that saw changes come to pass that saddled New Zealand with the world's most extreme abortion laws. Laws that coincidentally came into effect the night before our very first lockdown, March 25th, 2020. 
Winston had carefully targeted the values and pro-life vote over a long period of time leading up to the 2017 election. This included speaking at Family First's high-profile forum on the family event, where he stated that he opposed the decriminalising of abortion, and where he even admitted that life begins at conception. When, do, when do, for you personally, when do you think life begins? When does a child, unborn child, have a right to life? At what point in their life? Well, he's speaking biologically. Life begins from the very start. Conception. Yeah. Peters consistently brandished his pro-life credentials with 100% pro-life on abortion ratings in a number of leader questionnaires on pro-life issues. The results of those questionnaires were circulated in the Value Your Vote guides to tens of thousands of households across New Zealand and positioned his party as the one to elect for this part of the voting public. This was also a position reinforced by his MP Tracy Martin, who represented New Zealand First on stage at the 2017 Forum on the Family election event, where she confirmed the party supported keeping abortion in the Crimes Act and not decriminalising it. There's, uh, you would have heard just in our discussion, there's a very strong push to decriminalise abortion. It's not mm. a legal issue, mm. it's a health issue. Where does New Zealand First stand um, on that? For me, it has to stay in the Crimes Act, because to do it in any other way than what is dictated, is a crime. However, soon after, once Winston was elected into Parliament and for his next three years in office, he delivered an extraordinarily different follow-through to what his pro-life supporters had trusted he would. In 2018, Right to Life UK published this video explaining that the New Zealand Parliament was set to debate a new abortion bill which would permit abortion up to full term. National MP Chris Pink says the changes mean you are, quote, liberalising abortion right up to birth. Is he right? No, that, that's an absurd sort of statement that gets made by the, the fanatic anti-abortion people. If, hypothetically speaking, a woman was to go to her doctor after 22 weeks with no medical complications and say, I don't want to have this baby, I want to have an abortion, and the doctor agrees, is there anything to stop that from happening? Well, the, the health professional carrying out the abortion will have an ob obligation to be satisfied that the abortion is appropriate given mm. uh, the woman's uh, physical and mental health as well as her well-being. Part 1, Clause 7 of the New Zealand government's abortion legislation bill outlines that abortion would be available from between 20 weeks and birth on well-being grounds. It will only be up to a single doctor or nurse to decide what well-being includes. In practice, this will allow for abortion, for any reason, right through to birth. If this bill passes, New Zealand will have the most extreme abortion legislation in the world. Like was being done with the end-of-life choice bill, around the same time, the Crimes Act was being targeted for change, and the health community and our medical professionals were again being completely sidestepped by doing so. It was confirmed that Winston Peters gave his express approval for the Crimes Act to be changed, to essentially allow the success of this exceedingly merciless bill, as had been done for the end-of-life choice bill, with his guidance and assistance. Against his explicit promises, he then gave his explicit approval for abortion to indeed be decriminalised. Even the secular publication of Scoop Politics New Zealand deemed Winston's actions as a failure by New Zealand First to protect our unborn children, in a mortifying betrayal of their campaign promises. Chapter 10 A Masquerade Most Foul
In February 2020, a further article was published explaining that this monstrous abortion bill was very much Winston Peters' bill, the very same man who had been elected on the pro-life vote. It explained the truth of how, after saying he would not remove abortion from the Crimes Act, that he was then instrumental in doing just that. I'll read from the article so as not to run the risk of putting it into my own words. Ahead of the 2017 New Zealand election, Winston Peters cornered the values and pro-life vote, making it clear to voters that his New Zealand First Party would not decriminalise abortion, introduce an extreme abortion law allowing abortion up to birth, and that they would support a change to the law to state that the unborn child has a right to life, to improve informed consent during the abortion process, and to implement parental notification for girls aged 15 and under seeking abortions. This reinforced a clear, long-standing position which had been communicated to voters over a number of years. Once in government, Winston Peters has joined his coalition partner in bringing forward a bill to introduce the most extreme abortion legislation in the world, which would allow abortion de facto on demand for any reason up to birth to the New Zealand Parliament. This bill is very much his bill. He had his MP, Tracy Martin, work on co-writing the bill along with the Justice Minister over an eight-month period. Then his cabinet, in which he is the number two ranked minister, signed off on the bill, a bill which would see the establishment of the most extreme abortion law in the world. This is a bill so barbaric that it wouldn't even see a few dollars spent to anaesthetise a full-term baby at the point of his or her violent life-ending procedure. In fact, a supplementary order was raised to allow a baby up to 40 weeks gestation some pain relief, as it is a particularly brutal procedure for the baby. But the self-proclaimed pro-life Winston even voted no to that, with his entire party following suit. No to a few dollars and a few minutes to prevent the indisputable pain that a fully formed baby would suffer as a result of this procedure. The public, as well as the medical community, had made their position clear many times, such as in this Curia poll, that they did not support any legislation that supported the availability of abortions based on issues such as sex selection. In March 2020, Right to Life published another article on the issue, desperately trying to raise the alarm by notifying people that the New Zealand government was now rushing the extreme legislation into law while the country was distracted with the pandemic. Yes, the preparations were all done just prior to the fake pandemic, ready to roll it on through at the height of the pandemic chaos. The final sitting on the committee stage and the bill's third and final reading were pushed through Parliament on the same day, which just happened to be the day before our first lockdown on March 25th, 2020. This article went on to describe some of the more harrowing aspects of the legislation proposed in the bill, such as Abortion will now be available de facto on demand for any reason up to birth. Sex selective abortion will be legalised. The current 20-week limit for disability selective abortion will be scrapped and abortion will be available up to birth for disabilities including cleft lip, club foot and Down syndrome. There will be no requirement that a doctor be involved with providing an abortion. There'll be no legal requirement that babies born alive after a failed abortion are given medical support. There'll be no legal requirement that pain relief be given to babies being aborted between 20 weeks and birth. 
There'll be no legal restrictions on controversial methods of abortion such as intact dilation and extraction abortions, also known as partial birth abortions, a procedure frequently used in late-term abortion. Apologies, but this is something I cannot bring myself to read the definition of, so I'll just leave it on the screen. What is partial birth abortion? Partial birth abortion, PBA, is the term Congress has used to describe a procedure that crosses the line from abortion to infanticide. The doctor delivers a substantial portion of the living child outside his mother's body, the entire head in a headfirst delivery or the trunk past the navel in a feetfirst delivery, then kills the child by crushing his skull or removing his brain by suction. Why would anyone use this procedure? Some abortion doctors use PBA in the middle and last months of pregnancy, when dismembering a child becomes more difficult due to the child's stronger bones and ligaments. So, as it explains here, dismembering is the preferred method, but once the baby is much further along in gestation, the partial birth method becomes the common option. Please understand that this can be a full-term baby, and remember, our government voted to deny that baby any anaesthetic at that point. Another element mentioned in this article was that the Greens claimed to have misunderstood and bungled the vote around the safe spaces and free speech component of the bill, which then, all by unfortunate coincidence apparently, resulted in the criminalising of any offering of advice, counselling or help outside the clinic. As no requirement for counselling exists in the bill, this means that a woman with a full-term baby could attend a clinic and have the baby terminated without ever hearing from anyone at any stage along the process who may try to provide her with an alternative course of action. This article also went on to mention that a petition had been lodged with over 60,000 signatures. This citizen's petition was lodged through citizengo.org a few weeks prior to the bill's final sign-off. It called on Winston Peters to withdraw the bill as he was the one with the authority to do so. Even though the petition received 65,000 signatures, needless to say, Winston did not withdraw the bill. Actually, I'd go as far as to speculate that he may have relied on the fact that Jacinda was Prime Minister and all blame would be placed on her, for which she also deserves, of course, but also perhaps because they knew she was going to be out of here post-COVID, but that Winston was going to be repackaged and sent back in, so he needed to come out looking like his hands were at least a little bit clean. Chapter 11. Winnie gets the blood off his hands. At this point, once this heinously cruel bill was well and truly on track and gaining momentum, Winston Peters all of a sudden requested a public referendum, barely a day or two before the first reading. It was obvious that the late stage of this request almost guaranteed that it would be denied. Tracy Martin and Andrew Little both said many times that in all the months leading up to the bill entering committee phase that no mention of referendum was ever made. It appeared as if Winston was now trying to separate himself from Labour and from a bill that he had supported through the first and second readings and had played such a pivotal role in, by making a request for referendum to save face with the public, while knowing that the late point of that request pretty much guaranteed it would never happen. 
As you can see in this article, Tracy Martin declared on the morning report, the very day before the first reading of the bill, that no discussion of referendum had ever been had, even at that late point. Here was Mike Hosking's take on the situation. Although I don't think he has much of a handle on globalist agendas like extreme abortion bills and extreme end-of-life bills, he knew something wasn't adding up. Winston Peters is who I'm talking about. He is 100% right and I suspect the arch-villain here as well. New Zealand First wants a referendum apparently on abortion law reform. Tracy Martin has been hung out to dry basically as the New Zealand First representative. Either that or she's Machiavellian and hiding something. It seems inconceivable the party sent her out and didn't tell her about a desire for a vote. It also seems inconceivable she didn't ask whether it would be part of the mix. If it's the latter, she's incompetent in almost Twyford-like proportions. Now the villain part of Peters is the fact he's manufactured this, of course he has. I mean good grace and manners would have involved him giving everyone a heads up. He didn't do that. Why not? Because it didn't suit his agenda. Here's Right to Life UK's take on Winston's request for a referendum. They write, Winston Peters has hidden behind claims that he will introduce a referendum amendment at committee stage of the bill to give New Zealanders a say on whether this extreme bill becomes law. This appears to have been a move to try and stop voters from leaving the party. The problem with this approach is that it will not be part of the core bill and he does not have the support of sufficient numbers for it to pass. If he was serious about letting the New Zealand public have a say on whether this bill becomes law, he would have insisted that his government include a provision guaranteeing a referendum on this issue in the body of the original bill, but this was not included. Which is of course what Winston did do for the end of life choice bill, because that's a referendum he actually did want. Many New Zealand First supporters tried to reconcile this whole nightmare with the notion that Winston Peters just didn't know how atrocious the bill was and that when he became aware of it, he asked for a referendum. But as I said, he only made that request a day or two before the first reading and then he went on to vote for the bill, in favour of it, after that, in both the first and second readings. This support was essential for the bill to gain the traction and momentum that it needed, momentum that wouldn't be halted by a referendum request that late in the game. Winston knew full well that it would take more than a handbrake to slow this thing down at that point. That's exactly why he made sure that the provision for the referendum on the end of life choice bill was locked into the core of the bill years before it went to committee phase. Nevertheless, Winston put his spin doctors to work to sell the handbrake narrative yet again. Cam Slater's the BFD in particular worked hard to create the false narrative that Winston was doing his best to do what he does, apply the handbrake on a rogue government. And they were quite successful in establishing that narrative actually, by leaving out all the important details. The BFD published headlines such as this one, declaring that Winston had indeed slowed down the abortion bill, when the truth is he didn't slow it down one little bit. He could have at any point along the way. He could have stopped it altogether, but he chose not to. And it was his MP who co-wrote it in the first place under his leadership. New Zealand First supporters also proposed that Winston just didn't know what Tracy Martin was up to, although he's never actually said that, and that he was completely unaware that he was actually channeling the world's most extreme abortion bill through Parliament, and that's why he voted for in the first two readings. The problem with that theory is that it requires Winston to not have read the bill, 
before voting in favour of it at the first two readings. <laughs> he voted in favour twice, allowed it to gain the necessary momentum where it couldn't then be halted in time, and then he voted against in the final reading. It's a well-known trick. You see, clever politicians like Winston Peters know how to read how a bill is tracking and know when it's safe to withdraw support to save face. He knew of the swag of Liberal women and National who would be voting in support, such as Judith Collins, Amy Adams, Nikki Kaye, Paula Bennett, many more. By all appearances, it seems that he knew that he could at that point say to his men, you know what boys, I think we're fine. I think we can wipe our fingerprints off this now and let the women do the dirty work and be cast as the barbaric murderers here. People are less likely to point the finger at a woman. It's her body after all. So now that we've got this thing into a sure position, let's just back off and wash up. So let's have the New Zealand First men vote against on the third reading and let's have our New Zealand First women vote in favour. That way it keeps the women's vote safe too. So when all was said and done, he was able to present himself on the other side saying he'd asked for a referendum but he was denied it and that he voted against the bill. But why hasn't he ever since condemned the bill? Why has he never talked about having it repealed at any stage along his 2023 election campaign. Chapter 12. Winston Peters, or Winston Biden. But okay, let's give Winston the benefit of the doubt here. Let's say he didn't know how bad this bill was that his own MP was writing under his nose and that he voted in favour of, twice. Even though the imputation of Winston being oblivious to such a grave and devastating oversight is, um, well, not good. <laughs> Let, let's investigate what would be the best case scenario here. Let's explore this narrative that he didn't know, that he was duped somehow. Well, that would fit with Winston's account of being unaware of a 2021 COVID-related tweet that's been doing the social media rounds lately, which reads, people need certainty and a plan, not uncertainty and spin. Let's start with no jab means no dole and no parole. <laughs> when that one resurfaced recently, Winston said he didn't make it, he didn't even know about it. It was a staffer error, even though it's done under his name with his official little blue tick. It was put down to a one-off that didn't accurately represent his position. Unfortunately for him, that doesn't explain this tweet that says the government should have gone harder and faster with the vaccine. Or this one that says the only way to freedom is mass vaccination. Sounds a little bit like what Big Pharma and some of those globalist organisations were saying. Or how about this one, which says the fake vaccine is our passport to a changed future. Well, that's some whiff in World Health Organisation language. Or this one from three days later, where he just got right to the point and said we needed to start using vaccine passports. I mean, let's not pretend we know that he knew COVID wasn't 
killing people. So at this point, I'm a little confused if he's working for the New Zealand government, uh, Big Pharma or the World Health Organization, the way he's talking. Those are just a handful of his tweets. Unfortunately, I didn't manage to get a screenshot of all of them. And I'm sure you can all remember how he blamed the unjabbed for the lockdowns and rallied mass resentment towards us from our fellow Kiwis in a bid to have us relent and go take the poison. But okay, continuing with our best case scenario and accepting the excuses made by many New Zealand First supporters that these tweets were also made without his knowledge and assumingly against his wishes, perhaps misrepresenting his position, kind of like the abortion bill did, and let's even be generous enough to give him the benefit of the doubt that he didn't even know that the whole COVID pandemic was a scam. Well, what does that say about Winston Peters as a leader? Would you be happy with someone with that level of incompetence as a leader, that measure of ignorance and oblivion to what's going on in the world <laughs> and to what's going on in his own party, that weak of a grip over his own employees to hold a seat of power? I wouldn't want anyone like that anywhere near the wheel, but maybe that's just me. What future actions would he be willing to blame on staff at ERA? Let's hope his staff don't get too close to any little red buttons. Oops, staff at ERA. Surely, it can't be blamed on staff at ERA if it's his own voice saying it though, right? Should it be compulsory to be vaccinated in this country? And that is New Zealand? If you ask my personal opinion, Yes, we should be. It should be compulsory. It saves lives massively. Are you talking to your government partners about compulsory vaccination? Well, look, that's for the Minister of Health and others to, to, to uh, determine. Of course, this conversation will go on. Chapter 13. Rodeo Cowboy, or Rodeo Clown. You might be a little shocked to know that Winston Peters revealed to Mike Hosking in September 2020 that he had urged the cabinet two days before the first lockdown that the military needed to be called in. I told them that two days before we went into the lockdown in the first place, that the military had to be involved. I've got witnesses to what I'm saying. And I said way back on the 19th of March that you've got to bring in people like Heather Simpson and have an oversight over the bureaucracy to make these things work. I said way back then we need to have masks. Yes, if it had his way, the army would have been patrolling our streets during our lockdowns, just like they were in China, to enforce their zero COVID policy. He also said that Heather Simpson should be hired to manage the situation. A woman who worked for Helen Clark for over 20 years was her chief of staff for nine, a woman that even Helen Clark joked was actually the most powerful woman in the country and that she still maintained a friendship with even while working at the UN. Have a listen to this little clip from October 2020, where Winston responds to a member of the public who dared to ask for scientific evidence of COVID. A reasonable request that a simple coronavirus might have been isolated by now to prove its existence, seeing that the complete evisceration of our society had been blamed on it. But Winston didn't seem to think it was a reasonable request. In fact, he ridiculed him, threw him an obligatory flat earther insult and shut him down. Where's your evidence that there is a virus that causes the disease? And you do that by satisfying four prescribers. Sit down, sit down, sit down. We've got uh, someone obviously got an education in America. <laughs> 2,000, 220,000 people have died in the United States. 
There are 8 million cases today. Uh, we've got 79,000 cases probably today in India. And here's somebody who gets up and says, the earth is flat. Sorry, sunshine, wrong place. Yes, sir. But I know many will be thinking, well, when he just didn't know the truth about the pandemic back then. But do you really believe that someone as internationally in the know as Winston Peters believed those figures he just quoted were true and accurate? We all know now that the COVID hoax was a long time in the making and was extremely and meticulously well orchestrated. How is it that we, the New Zealand public, with so much having been hidden from us, could have known what was going on, as that guy in Winston's audience clearly did. But Winston himself, who was not only an MP dating back to 1979, and the Treasurer of New Zealand, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, he's been Minister of State-Owned Enterprises, Minister of Racing, Acting Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister for two terms, how did he not know what we knew? He's got access to high security databases, for goodness sake. <laughs> Let's not forget too, that while Jacinda was off racking up ear points around the world, Winston was signing off on the most abominable human rights violations ever seen in this country as deputy and even as acting prime minister. How long are we going to pretend that these people don't know what they're doing? The government had access to vaccine harm data and coroner's data well before we did before it was filtered and sanitised and censored. But we still knew. Winston Peters would like you to believe that he had no idea. That he's just waking up a little bit now, not too much, <laughs> and just right before the election. And that is not what it looks like, people. It's not about votes. Chapter 14, Kiwi, Cowboy, or Globalist Hustler. It's easy to see that the truth about jab injuries is becoming more and more evident and that it's something that won't be hidden for much longer. Winston Peters knows that. Do you honestly think it's a coincidence that Winston's pushing of mandatory vaccinations, his opening the New Zealand market to another 1.3 billion for Big Pharma, his manoeuvring of an extreme abortion bill into law, his strategic assistance in manoeuvring the extreme end of life bill into law, are all actions that just happen to be right on track with the globalist depopulation agenda? His signing of the UN Global Migration Pact that we're about to have a look at in a moment is also a globalist agenda. How much more complicit does a politician have to show themselves to be before we stop making excuses for them and call them a globalist player? Do you think David Seymour just happens to have some heartfelt passion for the issue of euthanasia? <laughs> and a heartfelt belief that genders need to be bent as far as we can flex them? And that doing so will genuinely benefit our children and our future? and that he sincerely believes vaccine mandates are vital for humanity's survival. And that's why he's sacking every member of his own party that dares to speak against those mandates. He sacked five in the last two months, the very same ones who said that they might not support more mandates, which speaks pretty loudly about his pro-mandate intentions. Do you think it's just one of his deep core beliefs that Big Pharma shouldn't be bound by any restraints, like the one we had placed on pseudoephedrine because it played such a key role in our nation's out-of-control pee problem? 
and, and that he just wanted to be at Davos to make sure that there was an honest voice on the stage? <laughs> no. Act as a globalist player, a tail feather on the globalist vulture, and the other tail feather is New Zealand First, who seem to be out to capture the more conservative of their wake, even if it needs to be done by outright trickery and betrayal. Do you think it's a coincidence that Winston went out and deceived the pro-lifers right before that evil abortion bill was set to go through? Do you really think his MP Tracy Martin was just genuinely grieved at the idea of a woman not being able to end the life of her full-term healthy baby instead of being encouraged to place it into the adoption system? And that when he had no idea about any of it, do you really think someone as astute as Winston Peters doesn't know what's going on? He's not called a sly old fox for no reason. <laughs> he and David Seymour are as globalist as Luxon and Hipkins. Chapter 15, from Anti-Immigration to Open Invitation. In case you're still not convinced that Winston's a globalist player, let's have a look at his antics around immigration. After serving six years as Foreign Minister of New Zealand, there's no doubt that he knows the dangers of allowing wholesale immigration. In fact, he's made that clear in his strong message against the sudden global trend of open borders. A position which has again garnered New Zealand First a lot of support. Yet, here again, we see another example of Winston acting in complete contravention to his own words. Even though it met with the remonstration of much of the Parliament of the day, Winston Peters actually signed New Zealand up to the UN Global Migration Compact back in December 2018. Again, this is a globalist pact, the migration version of the pandemic treaty really, all about breaking down national borders and helping to usher in international measures and instruments of globalist control. There was much opposition to the UN's Global Migration Pact, both internationally and even from within our own government. Today, on the very cusp of the end of Parliament, Winston Peters has announced that the Labour New Zealand First Government will sign up to the UN Migration Pact. National, if in government, will overturn this. We believe that it will cede our sovereignty to the UN on migration, and that just isn't right. Scott Morrison refused to sign the Pact for Australia, saying not only was it a threat to national sovereignty, but that it also risked reversing hard-won successes in combating human trafficking. Many leaders of many nations opposed it, citing both those reasons, saying it was like a free pass to human traffickers, and that it also enables clandestine international bureaucracy and judiciary to dictate a nation's immigration policy, overruling the objections of sovereign states. In many nations where the UN Global Migration Compact was signed and accepted, active protests broke out in fierce opposition. But here in New Zealand, it was all kept pretty quiet, as Winston, Foreign Minister at the time, took charge and sealed the deal, signed the pact, despite appearing to be one of the only people in Parliament who actually supported it. Here he was again, acting in complete antithesis to how he'd previously presented himself to the public, as the very man who would be the handbrake to open slather immigration. And interestingly, the same man who said, you shouldn't have been surprised we asked for a referendum on abortion, even if it was late, because referendums is what New Zealand First do, didn't even consult with the people of New Zealand on this one. 
Coincidentally, the word immigration was noticeably missing from Winston's campaign launch this year, an absence that even the mainstream media picked up on. Was this simply another example of New Zealand First being used strategically to install globalist protocols without any mud landing on the major parties in the process? The signing of the UN's Migration Pact has seen an enormous increase in the rate of immigration in New Zealand, with almost 162,000 new immigrants last year, an increase of 199%. Open global borders and the dismantling of the sovereign power of individual governments is now yet another globalist agenda ambition that Winston Peters has been instrumental in achieving in New Zealand. The Global Migration Pact claims to streamline international migration processes. Funnily enough, streamlining processes is the same theme seen in the abortion bill language, the end-of-life choice bill language, and also the brand new coroner's amendment bill, which uses exactly those words actually, to justify obscene changes in the procedures for obtaining permissions for autopsies that have seen the numbers of post-mortem procedures plummet. A strange situation when you consider that the enormous rise in all-cause mortalities should logically see the rate of autopsies rise accordingly. Canada often seems to be a step ahead in certain globalist agenda items, and over there, this global migration compact has seen a tidal wave of foreigners completely overwhelm the government's ability to process the incoming numbers which has conveniently required UN intervention to help them out. And all at a cost of hundreds of millions of dollars to the Canadian taxpayer. Conservatives all over the world have warned that this globalist pact enables so-called progressives within each nation's government to liberalise domestic refugee and immigration laws, basically ceding their sovereignty on this issue, with the handy excuse of, the UN made us do it. But what's remarkable is that here in New Zealand, we've been signed up to this globalist pact by a politician who promised on his campaign trail that he stood for the exact opposite of what this migration pact actually represents. This article is another example of Winston's promises to fiercely tighten up loose migration policies and loose borders in the lead up to the 2020 election. Winston Peters also dedicated himself back in 2020 to the cause of making sure that Taiwan had a seat at the World Health Organization's table. Again back in 2020, again done under the cloak of peak COVID chaos. Winston's push caused quite some tension between China and New Zealand, but again, he took care of it and got the deal done. His explanation as to why he fought so hard to have Taiwan included was that he wanted every country to have the opportunity to be a member of an organisation that's designed to improve the world's health. At the time, NZIBC director Stephen Jacoby said Winston's behaviour and his provocative comments raised huge concerns for New Zealand's exporting relationships when he refused to join the other four Five Eyes nations in May 2020 in a joint declaration condemning China's national security legislation on Hong Kong. Winston provided very little explanation for this decision and also made claims that Zhao Lijian, China's foreign ministry spokesperson, said needed to be publicly addressed 
saying that Winston's comments were straining relationships. Chapter 16 Suddenly, one of us. And most of it's rubbish. So I feel saddened for those journalists and I've in the weeks leading up to the coming New Zealand general election, Winston's been touching on a number of issues that he knows will prick up the ears of those who are awake and aware. They wanted to give the media $55 billion. $55 million. Million dollars, $55 million, sorry, yes. And he's causing a lot of people to think he's on the side of right. So we're going to be accused by all... For example, Although he's known ever since the Public Interest Journalism Fund was launched back in 2020 that the title is a complete oxymoron and that the words government paid media and public interest don't belong anywhere in the same sentence, he's never made a stand against it before now. But suddenly he's talking about how the media have been bribed and that that's just not okay. Public Journalism Interest Fund is going to be based on this. You're going to follow this now. Why didn't he say something earlier about this? And look how far down the rabbit hole of uh, the non Is it just a coincidence that he didn't talk about it while the fund was open, but now that it's recently closed, he is? No damage can be done to the scheme by talking about it now that it's closed. Our government has paid off our media to the tune of $66 million, because as it states here, three million's yet to be allocated, now, why wouldn't Winston have spoken up back when it was still open and when he could have done something about it? And how can we not mention Winnie's sudden statements about Māori not being indigenous? That's a conversation that's been happening online amongst the truth community more and more over the last few months. Surely Winnie must have known this, being part Scottish and part Māori, 78 years old. Why has he never mentioned it before? Why is it only now, on the campaign trail, that he's suddenly making specific public statements aligned with exactly what a group whose votes he'd like to pick up is also talking about? Hepuapua is based on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, another globalist agenda repackaged as co-governance for New Zealand, and the fact that Māori aren't Indigenous takes the justification for co-governance out at the knees. And Winston knows that we've been talking about that. Now that particular message, coupled with the jab compensation message, are pretty clear indicators as to the voter base that he's targeting. Chapter 17, A Climate of Lies. Another thing that Winston Peters knows is that the climate change narrative is a lie. The altering and hiding of NIWA data comes from a government level instruction. Government has access to climatological data before we do. Yet Winston, clever man that he is, plays the fool and perpetuates these lies. Why hasn't he spoken up to challenge the monumental lies that are being told to enable operations such as managed retreat, an obviously globalist agenda? When's he going to talk about the deliberate perpetrating of weather events to achieve this managed retreat aim? When's he going to talk about geoengineering, the only true contributor to human-caused climate change? Instead of exposing the lie and speaking up about the harm that the lie is inflicting upon humanity, he perpetuates it. 
He's the one who announced that he'd personally see to it that the entire fleet of government vehicles would be 100% emission-free by 2025, 26 at the latest. We will all need to let go of some things and to be more committed to finding the answers... Back in 2019, he showed no compassion to farmers who were reeling from the announcement of the climate change response Zero Carbon Amendment Bill, saying this to farmers who complained it would destroy their livelihoods. His response to criticism from farmers. Sometimes, you know, the stuff at the back of the cows can get into your ears and contaminate your thinking. Winston Peters has very much towed the line of the climate change deception. But in his usual form, now that we're coming up to an election, suddenly his script has changed. Now that he's targeting the so-called conspiracy and anti-vax bunch, he's dropping a little anti-climate change rhetoric here and there into his campaign meetings. Speaking of climate and lies, there appears to be a distinct climate of lies wherever Winston goes. In fact, for the next instalment of Winnie's Lies, let's take a look at the TPPA affair. Chapter 18. The Great TPPA Bluff. In 2016, Winston Peters spoke loudly and boldly against John Key's TPPA intentions for our nation. He rung with truth and conviction as he spoke about the corporate globalist designs to control us. His discerning and knowledgeable words were everything we wanted to hear, and many of us were swept up in his electoral campaign that strongly featured his promise to deal to TPPA once he was in the doors of Parliament. Again, his powerful promises saw him ushered into government in 2017. But once inside, he then completely broke his promise in his usual fashion and declared his total support of the deal, one he had so strongly criticised just a few weeks earlier. He attempted to then justify his betrayal with the same old line that he's used to justify so many of his other backflips. Satisfactory changes to the deal have been made, he said, when that was just categorically untrue. Those changes were not even put to the public and the public still wholeheartedly disagreed with the entire deal. Chapter 19. The Shameless, 1080, 180. An almost identical betrayal happened around his 2017 promises to ban the use of 1080. He sounded so convincing that this toxic operation would be finished by his hand once he arrived in Parliament. He talked in specific terms about alternatives that would be used once he was elected. Examples of alternatives to 1080. And lengthy public addresses had people convinced that this time he was for real. 1080 is a very dangerous product. I want to make it very clear, we are going to put minutes into finding an alternative. We'll stop it now. We're going to turn into an industry. We're going to pay people a trap, turn into a fur industry. We're going to do everything we can stop it as soon as we can. Even though Winston said he would have 1080 gone by lunchtime, to the heartbreak of so many who had trusted him, all they received in return for their trust was silence on the issue for Winston's entire term in office. Chapter 20, down 200 metres. But where's Mr Peters? Well, 
Well, what's wrong with that? I bet that Again, Winston Peters breached public faith upon entering Parliament, this time by his failure to fulfil his emotive promise to be among the first to re-enter the Pike River mine. Let me just say, I'm willing to keep my promise. You've made, you've made your... Winston Peters joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. You want to go back into the mine? In 2016, he solemnly declared that he would be in the first team to re-enter the mine after the 2010 disaster that saw the bodies of 29 miners entombed 200 metres down. When you have the first crew lining up to go back, and I'm offering to go, as someone who's had some experience in mining, working underground in dangerous conditions... Many said he shouldn't say such a thing, as it was sensationalising on something that many families were still grieving over. Nevertheless, he kept repeating his heroic-sounding promise, which was, of course, broken like the rest of them when a team finally re-entered the mine in 2019, minus one Winston Peters. Chapter 21. Tracy versus the kids. Round number two. In a scenario very reminiscent of so many others we've seen, Winston Peters again seems to be saying one thing and doing another in the arena of the horrendous globalist agenda of sexualising our children. Again in September 2020, which was a very busy month for New Zealand First, funnily enough, right before they were about to end their term in Parliament, Winston sent in his Minister of Education, Tracy Martin, to implement agendas that might make him look bad, just like he did with the abortion bill. Seeing that she'd done such a great job surrendering our unborn to the globalists, he sent her in again to round up the children this time, appointing her to write the Sexuality and Relationship Guidelines, which she was then tasked with introducing and implementing in schools across the nation, with Winston's approval and under his guidance. Tracy said that her new guidelines were all about promoting genderqueer inclusivity and opening up the conversation of sexuality and sexual diversity amongst our children in schools. Again, actions that Jacinda seemed quite happy to take the credit for, but that New Zealand First were actually a major player in implementing. Like a good indoctrinated principal, Onslow College principal Sheena Miller said that after Tracy's visit to her school, she now understood that Tracy Martin's new guidelines meant that teachers and principals all over New Zealand were now mandated to have conversations about sexual diversity and sexual inclusiveness at school and within school communities. I'm sure you'll be unsurprised to know that contained in these guidelines are elements that remove parental control or even parental awareness of this part of our children's lives. So when a precious young person is having their sexuality and their mental health violated in the face of this globalist grooming regime, a parent won't even have the right to know the conversations going on in the classroom. And already, according to these sick globalist guidelines, very young children are being taught about issues like masturbation and surgical sex change without parents even being notified. Chapter 22. PGF, or Daylight Theft? In June 23, the Auditor General expressed concern over what appeared to have been another of Winston Peters' mechanisms employed to gain votes and get himself into Parliament by whatever means. 
This time, Winston's 2018 Provincial Growth Fund, which saw $3 billion allocated to regional economic development and investment. David Seymour said it was never about regional economic development, but was instead all about New Zealand first trying and failing to buy votes in the provinces, as accounted in this 2023 article. The article also goes on to describe how Shane Jones used the Provincial Growth Fund to give money to organisations that he was previously involved with or that had donated to him or to people he was related to. In 2020, the Labour government then took $640 million of that fund and added it to the COVID fund. The Office of the Auditor-General clearly thought there was more than voter theft going on as well and wrote a letter to Parliament outlining what he deemed as a need for much greater scrutiny as to where this money was being spent. Chapter 23. From the Auditor's Office to the Serious Fraud Office. Speaking of money and donations, let's have a look at how New Zealand First is funded. Well, actually, it's not that easy to look at. As much of this funding appears to be wrapped up in the New Zealand First Foundation, strategically set up in 2017 and accused of being founded on a sham by the Crown itself in 2022. Back in 2020, it had already been publicly accused of being a front for its true purpose, a political slush fund controlled by Winston's trusted advisers. In February 2020, the Serious Fraud Office received a referral from the New Zealand Police in relation to the New Zealand First Foundation and the donations received therein. A week later, the Serious Fraud Office commenced an investigation into the alleged offences, which they deemed to be significant and serious. In September 2020, the Serious Fraud Office charged two New Zealand First Foundation members with obtaining donations by deception, and a request for their name suppression was immediately filed. Then, all of a sudden, up popped Cam Slater, fighting hard in support of this name suppression and filing an affidavit to support the bid. A little unusual, seeing Cam had no open public affiliation with the New Zealand First Foundation at all, Cam then published a set of photos soon after on his whale oil website which were of Guy Onespina and another journalist speaking to the president of the New Zealand First Foundation while they were actively investigating the serious fraud case situation. The photos were taken hidden paparazzi style and were accompanied by baseless belittling of Guyon's reporting and strongly defending New Zealand First. This article here is actually a very revealing article that I recommend you read if you'd like to know more about this situation. It makes it clear that although Winston tried to separate himself from the foundation after the allegations were made, he was very much an integral part of the foundation. Espiner had even uncovered foundation board minutes showing that Peters was present and signing off on the dubious activities, and also at least 20 invoices addressed to the Right Honourable Winston Raymond Peters himself. The way Guyon described the scene was like this. Peters has crafted an image of New Zealand First as the party for the little guy. Struggle Street versus Queen Street. Battlers standing up to the corporate raiders of neoliberalism. This conjures up a vision of a party funded by little old ladies buying lamingtons at weekend fundraisers. And if you follow the article through, you'll see that that couldn't be further from the truth. 
rather than little old ladies selling lamingtons, you'll see names like Graham Hart, New Zealand's wealthiest man, the uber-rich Vandenbrink family, apartment complex developers and also a major fishing company, all making repeated donations at $5 under the limit so that they can remain private. Funds that were then used for New Zealand first party purposes. A letter was also tabled in Parliament by a New Zealand First trustee, Brian Henry, with a direct threat to sue Guyan Espiner, as well as any MP who spoke publicly as a result of Guyan's publications, for up to $30 million. However, getting back to the photos that appeared on Cam Slater's website. On his Magic Mornings show, Peter Williams questioned Winston Peters about the source of those photos that appeared on Cam's whale oil site, asking about their apparent covert nature and whether New Zealand First Foundation had hired a private investigator and then given the photos to Cam Slater. Winston replied saying they hadn't employed a PI, saying, quote, we took those photos. Well, there's a photograph of Espiner with um um, Lester Gray meeting in Tauranga and then with yeah, uh, Matt, Ch Matt Chan coming to join them a few minutes later. Yeah, I know. Look, Mr Williams, I know that. We took the photograph. It certainly is interesting that immediately after the photos were taken, the only place they were published was on Cam Slater's whale oil site. Now, some have told me that I joined dots that I shouldn't have in my last piece, the election PSYOP video, which went into connections between New Zealand First, Cam Slater, VFF and RCR Radio, and also mentioned the association of Voters United. I also suggested links between astroturfer Glenn Inwood with Shane Jones, the Curiopol's David Farrar, Voices for Freedom and of course Cam Slater. And I talked about how they all seem to link back to New Zealand First. Since my election PSYOP video, those very same key players have been proven to be connected through a project called VoteWise. VoteWise is another Teach the Public How to Vote AstroTurf campaign to influence the public vote, launched by the SB Group. The SB Group was registered as a third-party promoter for New Zealand First Shane Jones candidacy in Northland and co-directed by Glenn Inwood and Voices for Freedom coordinator Daniel Tyther two people that I mentioned in my election PSYOP video. Seeing this group is set up as a promoter for New Zealand First, we now have a clear direct link between Resistance Kiwi's Glenn Inwood, who's also been exposed for astroturfing in the business world, and a connection to Voices for Freedom. So, why is Voices for Freedom involved in the creation and direction of a New Zealand First third party promotions group? And as VFF own Reality Check Radio, is this a conflict of interest? The Dominion Post reported recently that the VoteWise project is another New Zealand first organisation that appears to have been set up with the purpose of exploiting a loophole in the electoral law in regards to disclosure of political donations. Even though it's ridiculous to think that Shane Jones hasn't given the SB Group authorization to do what they do, the group is set up in such a way that if legal trouble did arise, he would be protected. Which seems to have been the situation with Winston Peters, with the New Zealand First Foundation's serious fraud office case. Winston denied all knowledge of the shady goings-on at the New Zealand First Foundation, but still, the serious fraud office alleged that members of the New Zealand First Foundation were operating a fraudulent scheme over a four-year period, well into 2020, to conceal nearly $750,000 worth of donations, 
and that they had deceived the Electoral Commission and voting public by having that three quarters of a million dollars in party donations paid into non-party bank accounts. The donors included some of the wealthiest people in New Zealand, from the business world and particularly the horse racing industry. The funds were then spent on a range of party endeavours, including leasing and furnishing office space on Wellington's Lambton Quay for the New Zealand First Headquarters, as well as a guest appearance fee of nearly $10,000 for Kiwi boxing champ Joseph Parker, and a $25,000 cinematic video of Peter's touring New Zealand on a bus. It was revealed that New Zealand First Foundation donations funded these buses as well as advertising. Slick TV and social media advertising like this can't come cheap. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all those doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Yours is New Zealand and everything that's in it. And which is more, we'll all be Kiwis. Everyone. This year, there's been a distinct theme in New Zealand First advertising of Winston Peters being somewhat of an avenger, a vigilante, here to sort out the vermin and take out the trash. As he rides his horse, dressed like a cowboy, there's a definite, here he comes to bring retribution to a renegade government kind of vibe. To govern a country, you need experience. And this is not our first rodeo. What we have to decide is, are we gonna fall for this propaganda? Are we smarter than that? Is this man truly the anti-establishment hero that we're being sold? Or is he actually an employee of the establishment, playing a character sent out to wrangle the disenchanted? He's one of us now, he says. Just a good old Kiwi bloke on the end of a fishing rod in his oilskin coat. But let's not forget, he's usually dressed in expensive suits. And this Kiwi bloke fishing picture is him on his mansion's front lawn, fishing during lockdown while most of us were cooped up in a city flat somewhere. But hey, it's no wonder he's back in the saddle. When you've campaigned off the back of false promises as many times as Winston Peters has, yet the people keep forgetting all about it like a bunch of goldfish brains. Well, it's no surprise he's right back up on the horse, ready to give it another gallop. Chapter 24. A Polly We Can Trust, or A Bunch of Bull Dust. We can't ignore the fact that Winston came down and said hi to the protesters at Parliament in February 22, and that he said many things that had us believing he might be the genuine article. But we have to weigh that action against his other actions, and we also have to ask what his motives may have been. What was in it for him? Could he simply have been responding to a field of voters ripe for harvest? Was he simply spending some time making a good impression so that he could cash in on that later down the track? More importantly, 
After that day, did he stand for those people he met, when he could, when it mattered? Did he fight to have the mandates abolished? Did he use his platform to expose the immense amount of jab injury and harm that he learned about while talking with those at the protest? And has he ever sincerely worked to expose the truth behind the COVID scam? Or did he actually just carry on after that, promoting the mandates and the poison? Well, in the last hour or so, we've seen the answers to those questions. And those answers should help us to predict whether he is likely to stand for the truth if he gets back into Parliament. The best predictor of future behaviour is past behaviour. On the 25th of September, Luxon announced what we always knew he would, that he's considering a coalition with New Zealand First. We all know that the National Party is the next globalist bloodsucker lined up to be installed inside our Parliament. We all know that the ACT Minion Party will be standing on the left of National once they're in, with David Seymour gleefully cleaning Luxon's spurs for him. But make no mistake, Winston would love to be standing on Luxon's right. And that is what will ensure that every promise Winston makes on his election campaign trail will, ultimately, bite the dust. So, you have to ask yourself, when that hour comes, will you rue the day that you trusted Winston Peters? Counterspinmedia.com